Well, hey, everyone, as we uh, continue our study in the book of Acts, this week we're diving into Acts chapter 2. You know, in scripture, there are a bunch of sort of watershed moments in the life of God's people and in his church. And this chapter is is definitely one of them. Um, We're seeing the birth of the church here. Um, And it's a really rich passage. There's a lot going on. Um, So just another reminder, like Darcy made uh, in the past couple weeks, these teachings are are meant to be kind of supplemental to your own study of scripture. So can't encourage you enough just to dive into Acts 2 on your own this week, um, but we are going to walk through the passage uh, together today. So I'm sure that all of us in our lives can imagine times where we had to wait for something, you know, something that had a great deal of anticipation around it that we couldn't wait for it to come. Maybe it was, you know, a particular trip or a particular event or something like that. Um, for Sharice and I, probably the most recent example of this was in 2018 when we got married. Um, we got engaged in September and then married in, on New Year's Eve. And, uh, and you know, when we got engaged, it started this process of waiting, uh, waiting for this event that we were so excited for. We were ready to start our life together, um, or at least the next chapter of it. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of preparation and we didn't know what was exactly going to be on the other side of that day. Um, but we knew that we wanted it to get there. And there was just like this, this angst for like, let's, let's get on with it. Um, and as we enter Acts chapter two, that's sort of the place that we find the apostles in. Um, they've been told by Jesus to uh, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, who would give them the power to fulfill the, the commands that they had been given, like the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and uh, the call to be his witnesses in Acts chapter one. So they know that they're kind of on the precipice of a new season in their life um, and they're ready for it, but they have to wait. And that's, that's where we find them. Um, so they're waiting, they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and then the day of Pentecost arrives. Now, as a side note, um, for, for those of you who maybe didn't know, Pentecost is, is an existing Jewish feast um, in the calendar. Um, it's a feast that happens 50 days after Passover. Uh, and uh, so when we come to Acts chapter 2 and we find them on the day of Pentecost, um, depending on how you do the math with the 40 days after um, Christ's death and resurrection for the ascension, um, we're somewhere between 7 and 10 days after Christ ascended into heaven and uh, the disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem like they've been told to. Probably about 120 of them gathered together. Um and then uh, all of a sudden it happens, you know, he comes and they may not have known what they were looking for, um, but there would have been no mistaking that, that this was it. Uh, let's read Luke's description of that event. Uh, Acts chapter two, verses one to four. He writes, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them as of tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And Luke's, Luke's description here kind of betrays that it was a super hard thing to describe. I mean, he uses language like a sound like a mighty rushing wind or tongues as of fire because he's experiencing this like really shocking thing to hear and see. Um, And there's just kind of no words that he can use that fully describe what's going on. Um, So he sees these tongues as a fire 
and he hears this sound of a rushing wind, but then he also hears all the disciples speaking in languages that, that they didn't know, that they hadn't learned. And it wasn't just gibberish, it was real, intelligible human language. And we know that because he goes on to describe that a crowd started to gather. So they're probably close to the temple because um, there's these Jews that are here from all over the world, from distances like up to a thousand miles away. They're probably gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover and then the Pentecost, but they hear this sound and they start a crowd starts to gather. And they all have probably different native languages that they would speak. Um, and they hear these rural, uneducated fishermen and the women with them speaking in these languages that they shouldn't know. There's like 120 people speaking in this myriad of languages and all of these Jews from different places can understand them. And while they comprehend what the disciples are saying, um, they rightly, as I probably would have been, um, are still confused. Like, what does all this mean? They ask in, uh, in verse 12. And then Peter steps up and preaches um, an explanatory sermon, the first sermon uh, in, in the Christian church. And his message is like, the wait is over. Like, he has come. Uh, he declares uh, the good news to the Jewish people that like what they've been waiting for, a Messiah, like he's here. He has arrived. The spirit has come and Christ is king. And so he, he starts his message by pointing the crowd to uh, a passage from the prophet Joel, which we can assume that they probably were familiar with. And he quotes from uh, Joel chapter two and says, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will pour I, I will in those days pour forth my spirit and they shall prophesy. You know, Peter is saying like, this is the moment. This is the moment that Joel spoke about the time he referred to when the spirit would come and be given to all. Like we are experiencing this right now. And this moment is hugely important here as Peter's explained it. Um, it's, it's hugely important for us because like the spirit has come now to indwell God's people, all of his people. Uh, at this moment has started uh, a way that God relates to, to those that are his. Um, and it's different than, than anything that's happened before. This gift of the Holy Spirit is, is not only for a time or for a place or for a single person. It's not given to just a representative of the nation or to some sort of intermediary like a prophet or a priest. It's given to all people, male and female, old and young, servant and free even to the rural uneducated fishermen and the women that were with them. The Holy Spirit is poured, on, poured out on everybody. And this is good news for them and it's good news for us. Um, because we know that like later in Acts, we see, um, and in the, new, the rest of the New Testament, that the Holy Spirit is a gift, a mark of authenticity for all believers in Christ. That he's now the, the constant source of wisdom and strength. Um, you know, remember that he's, He's not just some force, like this is God himself, the third member of the Trinity that's coming to live within his people, to lead them, direct them, uh, comfort them, and to help them live in the, the way that they are called to, the way that demonstrates to the world what God is like. Like he gives us by his spirit, he gives us strength, because if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, we know that we are imperfect. We know that we all fall short. We know that we can't even measure up to the standards that we set for ourselves, much less the kinds of standards that we see in like 
the Old Testament law or, or even in the, in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives. We know that our natural inclination is not towards those kinds of things. Um, but the good news uh, of the Spirit coming is that, you know, we can have um, true life and true satisfaction because we have Christ's life and his character and his heart. And we can experience what all of that is like when we live by the Spirit and not by the sinful nature. And he's within us to give us strength. Now, in this particular instance in Acts, like the Spirit is giving power to the disciples to start the fulfillment of their call to be witnesses, um, their call to make disciples. And God himself, by his Spirit, is the one who's giving them the words to speak in this instance. And so this is all, all the first part of what Peter is saying. He's saying, no, no, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> Um, but this is actually what's, what the prophet Joel spoke about. This is what he was talking about, that God himself has come to be present with his people. Like that is what you are seeing and hearing right now. And then he turns his attention from that to connecting all of it with the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, remember that the Jews were expecting um, a chosen one to be coming, you know, uh, an anointed one. In, in Hebrew, they call it the Messiah. And they expected that this Messiah would be a descendant of David, that he would reestablish in some sense the kingdom of Israel. And we see that expectation of this chosen one kind of littered throughout the whole Old Testament and also in the expectation um, that the, the disciples have in the Gospels. And I think it's hard to really understand for us what, like, how much expectation and anticipation there was around that Messiah, like how much was there in the Jewish na nation. Like they, they all knew that he was going to come and they were on the lookout for him. And so in that con it's in that context that Peter, Peter kind of places the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. What just happened a couple months previous, he says to them, you know, that Jesus of Nazareth, that carpenter's son who did all those miracles. Remember he was crucified just a couple months ago and he rose again. His tomb is empty. And all of that was part of God's plan from the beginning. And then he takes his listeners to Psalm 16 and he, the Psalm is written by King David and they may or may not have thought of it as a, a prophetic Psalm, but Peter interprets it as one and says to them, like David was prophesying here and he focuses on uh, a phrase in the middle that says this, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy one to undergo decay. He quotes that in chapter two, verse 27 says, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. And he says, David, David himself by the Spirit was prophesying when he wrote that. You know, if you read the passage, it may look like he was talking about himself, but Peter's saying, no, he couldn't have been. Because we know that David died. We know that David was buried and, and we know that he stayed dead. I mean, we have his tomb, but we also, we know that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And, and when David wrote this, he was looking forward to Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. He was buried, but he did not stay dead. And his body didn't decay. It didn't have time to because God raised him to life. We all witnessed this just like a few months ago. And then just a couple days ago, he ascended to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God. And now today you're seeing that he has poured out his Holy Spirit. You've seen this and you've heard this today. It's just like the prophet Joel said would happen. And then if there was any lack of clarity about what Peter was saying, he quotes Psalm 110, which was, was probably well known to the Jews, um, probably regarded as a messianic psalm. It's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. Um, but 
abundantly clearly, he says in verse, in verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You know, that word Christ, so that word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. So this is a super strong statement by Peter. He's saying, don't mistake what I'm telling you. Like, let everybody understand perfectly clearly. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the King. He is the fulfillment of everything that you have longed for, everything that you have waited for. And I think it's, it's kind of hard for us to comprehend exactly what that would have meant to the Jewish listener. Like just how big of a claim that was. Like, is it like somebody who's longing for a dream job full of expectation that they're going to find something that's going to make them feel more valuable and purpose-driven and fulfilled than any other position before? And then someone comes to them and says like, I found it. Here's the position for you. Or is it like a young man or a young woman who's looking for that perfect person to marry, somebody who will complete them, one who will, you know, love them perfectly and cherish them deeply, and then being told, like, here he is, or she's the one. Now, I think we kind of know that both of those images kind of fail to, to match the magnitude of expectation here, but also the quality of fulfillment. I mean, we know that neither of those things would actually result in anybody's ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction. But Peter is claiming that like Jesus does. Like Jesus is the fulfillment of, of all of the longing that the Jews had, everything that they were expecting. And so he's just simply announcing here good news to them. Like the spirit has come and Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He's alive, he's on the throne. Everything in our nation's history has built towards him. He is the one that the prophets spoke about. All of the longing that you have for God's law, for the fellowship with the Almighty, for right standing before, before him, like this is all fulfilled in Jesus. By his life, he has shown us the true way to obey God. And by his death and his re resurrection, he has freed us from sin. And you know, that should have been good news to the first century Jerusalem, and it was. But it's also good news for 5th century Africa, for 14th century Europe, and for 21st century Elmira. I mean, Joel's prophecy ends that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter says that this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself. And now, sure, in Elmira, it's probably true that most people are at best <laughs> familiar with the concept. Um of a Davidic Messiah, you know, they kind of vaguely know about it, but at worst it's completely lost on them. Um, and so if you were to present the good news like this as like, Jesus is the Messiah, you know, that might not have the same oomph if you present it in the way that Peter did in Acts 2. Um, but that doesn't mean that the news that he's talking about here is, is any less good. Um, because for both the Jew and the non-Jew, our deepest human longings find their fulfillment in Jesus. I mean, the, the mind of those in 21st century Elmira are probably not explicitly concerned with the concept of a coming king or with fellowship with the Almighty, but that doesn't make this message irrelevant because all human longings are, or all humans are created for something beyond this world. I mean, we are created with an insatiable longing for something. We have a desire for true fulfillment, true joy, true belonging. And that desire can only be satisfied by the creator who designed us for those things. 
we are meant to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that can only happen because of the finished work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. And it can only happen if we bring ourselves into alignment with his way of living, his heart, his culture, his kingdom, you might say. And you know, the Jews that were present in Acts 2 were obviously moved by this message that Jesus was the Messiah. In verse 37, it says that they were, they were pierced to the heart. And then they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? And Peter's response to them is in 2.38. It says, repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, growing up in the church, that word repent, it often conjured up images for me of like a fiery preacher, you know, calling people to leave their sin behind and embrace forgiveness. You know, like that the primary experience was a feeling of, of being sorry for what you had done and, uh, and asking Jesus to save you from your sins. And no doubt that kind of repentance is, is part of it. Um, but Peter's invitation here is, is more than that. It's not an invitation only away from something but it's an invitation to something. You know, it echoes the calls of, of John the Baptist and Jesus himself when they say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like, like turn away from the way you've been going, come my way, like the kingdom is here. So like N.T. Wright, uh, a New Testament historian, he kind of explains what this would have sounded like to Jewish ears. He says, when Jesus told people to repent, he didn't basically mean like in our sense, have some kind of very sad religious experience. He meant like, you're going the wrong way. You're going to have to turn around because God is doing a new thing. And if you're going to be a part of that new thing, you're going to have to give up the way that you've been going. So repentance is not just a call to stop doing all those bad things, although that might be part of it. It's a call like, come, Christ has a new way of thinking and a new way of living that's, that's better than the, the track you're on. It's far more fulfilling than anything you've ever experienced. And that was the message to, to Peter, or that was the message of Peter to, to the Jews there. And that's, that's the message for us and for people today. So then in Acts 2, like thanks to the work of the Spirit, uh, around 3,000 people um, responded to that teaching of Peter. And, and that day they left behind their former way of thinking, their former way of life, trying to earn favor um, with God through religious obedience and the works of the law. And they embrace the new life in the spirit, trusting in Jesus as their king, as their Messiah. And so with that, the church is born, a church that was grounded in the truths that the spirit has come, Christ is on the throne, and everybody's welcome to it. But just like um, a, a wedding day is really only the start of a marriage, you know, so Acts 2 is really only the beginning of the church the, and, and its life. Um, the mission that was given to the disciples and then by extension to the rest of Christianity, like this mission was to be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth and to make disciples of all nations. And in Acts, uh, in Acts 2, right at the end in verses 42 to 47, we see kind of the summary, the first summary we have of, of what that looked like for first century Christians. They were obviously influenced by the life um, that they saw demonstrated in Christ. They devoted themselves to things like prayer and teaching and caring for one another and those around them. Because the call to be Christ's witnesses for them was not reserved to just verbal proclamation. 
It meant living in such a way that demonstrated to the world what it's like when Jesus reigns. And our call in Elmira is the same thing. We, we here together have to figure out how to communicate to those around us that our deepest longings, um, the, the things we most desire at the core of our being, like all of those find their resolution in Jesus and in him alone. And then we need to figure out and we get to figure out um, how we can show them by the way we live, what it looks like to be a community where Christ is king. And I know for me personally, that always starts with, you know, on an individual level with the continual decision to submit myself to Jesus, with constantly reminding myself that everything I long for, everything um, I, I desire deep in my being, like all of that only finds its resolution not in not in like a hundred different things that I could do on a day to day basis, but but only only in Christ. And this mission to to follow Christ and to be His church and to demonstrate, um, you know, the kingdom of God and what it's like when Jesus reigns. This all starts now, um, regardless of current circumstances, um, because none of that changes. Um, none of that changes that the Spirit has come, that Christ is on the throne. And, and all are welcome. And so as we kind of wrestle through, you know, this season of life and, and we think about what it means to be the church, let's remind ourselves that this is like, this is the core of the mission, um, is, to, is to demonstrate and, uh, that Christ is king and to call people to a life with him. Um, and I pray that in these times we can figure out how to do that together. Um, yeah, let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much uh, for your word here and the call that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we've longed for, that the wait is over, that, that the time is now. And so I pray that you help us to discern what that looks like in each of our own lives uh, this week. Uh, be with us as we study your scriptures. Be with us as we go to work or as we spend extra time with our families. Um, we love you deeply. Um, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.